We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am your host, Rich Lumello. My guest today has umpired three All-Star Games, six World Series, and a combined 22 other playoff series and wildcard games. In 2021, he broke Bill Clem's record for games called, and when he retired at the end of last season, he had called a record 5,460 games. And he now has a podcast called 5460, the Joe West Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Joe West. Joe, welcome. Well, thank you. It's, it's so good to talk to you. I mean, we got introduced by our friend from Tunnels to Towers, and uh, and it's uh, it's been neat getting to talk to you and catch up and and uh, I'm real proud of your podcast, too. Thanks for plugging mine. That was very kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a fun process for me. I, I launched mine back in the fall, and I've, I've had a great time doing it. So uh, welcome to the podcasting world. Um, and uh, I, I thought, as, as we discussed, the way I kind of you know structure this is we talk a little bit about your background and then in your case how you got into umpiring and then just you know let's let's talk you know fun stories from your 40 plus years uh uh calling games you were you're born in Asheville North Carolina and you grew up in Greenville you were a football and baseball player in high school and you originally went to East Carolina and were playing free safety but the coach left and you went to Elon where you played quarterback Tell me about your college experience and, and your football days. And, and then it's kind of an interesting story how that kind of led you to umpiring. Well, it's, I got recruited by Mike McGee, who was a longtime NFL player. He actually went to Duke. And then when he came to East Carolina, that was his first head coaching job. And I was kind of the local athlete that he wanted on the team. And uh, so he went to my parents and he sat down with him. He said, we'll give your son a full scholarship to play football at East Carolina. And my mother said, what does that entail? And he told her that it paid for his, my books, my tuition, my meals. And when he got to the meals part, 
She said, just a minute, you'll pay for his meals. <laughs> and Mike McGee said, well, yes, ma'am. I was, she turned to me right then and said, you will play football. So that's how I became the football player in college because she said, if he'll pay for your meals, you're going to play football. So <laughs> that's great. But, uh, it was, it was something I, I mean, I grew up in a, a great baseball town. Greenville, North Carolina is, is known for their, their program for developing baseball players. They had uh, one of the best little league programs around and it was developed basically from the uh, Boyd Lee who ran the recreation department there. And I was, uh, I actually umpired a little league game in the same league I was playing in at 12 years old because one of the parents didn't show up. And I, I got interested in that. I mean, I wasn't really, didn't really have the bug then, but, and then I, when I went off to college to play football, I, you said I played safety at East Carolina. I played safety because we had two quarterbacks. One of them was Carl Sumrell, who later signed with the Giants and myself. And Carl was recruited by Sonny Randall, who was the coach that succeeded, succeeded uh, Mike McGee. And McGee, I was McGee's pick, and Carl was Sonny Randall's pick. So when McGee left to go coach at Duke, uh, I was going to be the odd man out. So I went to the second school that had offered me a full scholarship. I went to Elon College. And uh, like you said, I played safety on the freshman team, but it was basically because we were the practice squad for the varsity. And I intercepted a pass in practice one day. So I became the safety and Carl became the quarterback. <laughs> so, <laughs> but anyway, it was, it was a nice transition. I, when I went to Elon, uh, we won three conference championships. In my senior year, we played in the finals for the championship for the NAI division one, we lost to Abilene Christian, but uh, it, it was quite an experience. And, and you know what, playing football probably helped me in umpiring because when you get knocked down playing football, you got to get back up and prove that they didn't hurt you. And it's one of those things where uh, a lot of playing football helps you in, in all aspects of life. It's the teamwork involved and you don't really realize looking at an umpire that there's teamwork involved, but there is in almost every part of the job uh, because there are situations where you have to go cover somebody's base because they had to go out on a fly ball and, and, and things of that nature. And you, and your biggest job really in, in, in baseball is that you, you have to, and I say this all the time, I've always said it every young umpire that comes up, you, you have three responsibilities. Your first responsibility is to the game of baseball. Now that doesn't mean the commissioner's office. It means the game because you're one of the custodians of the game and you have to take care of it. Your second responsibility is to your profession. And that might not mean the umpire's union, but to the profession of umpire. And your third responsibility is to do what you know in your heart is morally honest and correct. And if you do those three things in that order, nothing you do will be wrong. Of course, after I give that little speech, I tell you, if you do those things in that order, you might get killed, but <laughs> that's just... <laughs> That's part of the job. If you if you're getting into this job to to win friends and 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 uh, make acquaintances, it's it's not a good job for that. But uh, it was very rewarding for me. And and like I said, uh, I started umpiring because the football coach at Elon, because I was a quarterback, wouldn't let me play on the baseball team because he was afraid I'd hurt my hands or my fingers or whatever. So I didn't get to play baseball in college. So I used to go on part of the local high school games in the, in the area. 
And this guy saw me umpire was the, the director of umpires for the Carolina League, which was the fastest A league in America at the time. And he said, if you're going to do this, y'all learn how to do it right. <laughs> so <laughs> he took me some clinics and he, he showed me things that, you know, that they teach you at the umpire school that they, you know, they're teaching, teaching you certain aspects of how to handle things like hold your indicator in your left hand. When you take your mask off, your hat can't come off. So you have to learn how to take your mask off where your hat doesn't fall off. And that doesn't sound like a big thing, but, you know, I used to practice in front of the mirror for hours, taking my mask off so that my hat wouldn't come off. And my brother used to laugh at me. So what are you doing? He said, I said, well, I'm practicing. You're practicing taking your mask off. And he'd laugh at me. Well, for 44 years in the major leagues, my hat never fell over my eyes on a plate home plate because I knew how to take it off. <laughs> and those little things that he taught me before I went to the umpire school got me way ahead of the kids that were already there. So I had a little bit of advantage when I got to the umpire school because I was already umpiring like a double A or triple A umpire. Right. And uh, so I was a little bit ahead of those guys. And then I was lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. They were scouting a ball player that was trying to be an umpire. And it was a, a game in the instruction league. And uh, I that was down in Florida. Yeah. The, the instruction league is a league that's like 60, 60 games. And it's after the, the minor league season. So right. they, they had brought this guy down to instruction league who had not been to umpire school. And he knew baseball because he was a big leaguer. His name, his name was Ike Brown, but anyway, uh, Ike had a play and he messed up the ruling and everything. So whenever all the, all the people are surrounding him, like he's Custer in his last end, I went down and I fixed the, the ruling. And there was a guy in the stands watching the game and he was there to Skype the scout Ike Brown. The guy in the stands was Fred Flagg. He was the director of umpires for the National League. And he turned to Barney Deary, who was the director of umpire development. He says, I don't want Ike Brown. I want that kid there. He's pointing to me. And uh, of course, Barney Deary said, you can't have him. He's only in double A. And Fred Flagg said, promote him. <laughs> so <laughs> I was in the right place at the right time. And so Eric Gregg uh, sure. and I came up the same time. And... Uh, I came up before Eric Gregg, but I, he had more games than I did when we first got hired full time. But uh, it was it was unique. I came up with a lot of great umpires. I mean, Eddie Montague, Jerry Crawford were ahead of me. Jim Quick was just ahead of me. So I came up with these guys that you know, full time National League umpires, and and the National League was revered because uh, they didn't take any crap. You know, we were the. I mean, we put our foot down. That was it. It, there was no arguing. There was no throwing equipment and all that stuff. And, and we were known for that. And, and we kicked out more people than the American League umpires did. And, uh, but it, it was funny because back then there were two different styles of, of the umpire. You know, um, the, uh, the American League was run by Cal Hubbard for the longest time, who was a big football player. And Cal believed that it, if a guy was a big guy, he had to prove that he couldn't umpire. You know, where a little guy had to prove that he, he could umpire. Right. So it was, it was a difference in just the appearance on the field and your persona, how big you were in this, that, and the other. Now, Barlick, who ran the National League umpires, both of these guys are Hall of Fame umpires, by the way. Yeah. Barlick didn't believe in how big you were. He didn't, he didn't care if you were big, short, uh, bow-legged, 
uh, cross out. He didn't care if you could umpire, he wanted you. And, uh, right. and so there was a difference in their style. And uh, both of these guys were hardcore umpires, you know, they, they didn't take any guff off the guys either. And, and I think the thing that, uh, I had reputation my entire career as being a hard ass and, you know, you can't say anything to him. Well, I don't, I don't know that that's a bad thing, but, but you should be able to talk to the official. You should be able to ask him a question. It's just a matter of how you do it. And one of the things that Sykes taught me, the guy that got me, you know, in the Carolina, he says, he says, sometimes it's not what you say, it's how you say it in the tone of what you say. So a lot of these arguments and stuff that we see on television and, and even the old time arguments are basically because someone said it in the wrong manner. Not necessarily that what they said was right or wrong, but they said it in the wrong way. And I can remember when I was, uh, I want to say four or five years in the league, I used to get really angry when a player would argue with me. In fact, I, I was working the Mets one day and uh, Dave Keeman didn't like a pitch I called on him. I was like the third pitch of the bat. And a couple of pitches later, I called ball four on him and he said something smart going to first base about the other pitch. And I screamed at him all the way to first base. I'm yelling. I'm chasing this guy down the baseline, and I called ball four on him. You know, so everybody's looking around like, what the hell went on there, you know? <laughs> well, Doug Harvey came down from first base between innings, and, he's, and, then, and here's another Hall of Fame umpire, Doug Harvey. And Doug says, don't let them ruin your day. So you're going good back there. You're having a good game. If they get out of line, throw them out. But do your job first. Yeah. And don't, don't let them ruin your day. You're, you're going good just because you have a disagreement. It's no big deal. Just, and it was like a light went on. That was the yeah. greatest piece of advice you could give a young umpire. Sure. And, uh, and, and that little hint right there, that little talking to helped me, you know, get through the troubled times that you have. And then, you know, let me ask you a question. You, you, when you came into the majors, you came in in 74 and you became, oh no, you came in in 76 and you became full-time in 78. For those first two years, were you just kind of pinch hitting? When... Yeah, I was, I was the call-up umpire. Minor, we were in the minor leagues. Oh, gotcha. Right, right, right. We were okay. working in the minor leagues. And if there was an injury, they bring you up, you know, because, and just like they do now, we have uh, we're probably are four or five umpires short of how many we should have for the schedule that they give you, but they, they have minor league umpires ready to come up and, and they take an option out on these kids so that they're being paid by the big leagues, whether they're working in the minor leagues or, or in the major leagues. Got it. Okay. And so they're the first ones you call up when somebody's injured or hurt or has to go home for whatever reason could be an illness or, somebody sick in the family and, and stuff. And, and, you know, from, from years ago, uh, it, it has gotten better. The conditions for being an umpire have improved because you, if you look at it, you don't have a home stadium where it, you're home half the time, right. you're on the road the whole time. Yeah. And now uh, I can remember back in 79, uh, we, uh, we had a, a strike and they hired uh eight scabs they had hired four in each league the american league hired four the national league hired four and they hired them to multi-year contracts so when we went back to work and they had to hire us all back or we wouldn't have come back 
they had four extra guys. So they gave us all two weeks off. Now, hmm. this will get funny the longer I tell this. So a few years later, the players had a work stoppage. And now they're going to go back to work and they're going to consolidate the season and take away all our off days. So, again, we put the picket lines up and got ready to strike. And so they gave us two more weeks off. So now in the history of umpiring, before I got to the big leagues, there was never a time off for umpires to go home and take what would be called a vacation, whatever. And from 1979 to now, we now have four weeks off and we've never negotiated for that. <laughs> we, <laughs> we got it because of one work stoppage or another. And, and uh, it's really funny. I, I keep telling people, maybe if we negotiate it right, we get the whole year off. But <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, and I'm fascinated, like you mentioned Doug Harvey a few minutes ago. So in, let's say, let's say it's the, you know, pick a year, 1979 and Pittsburgh's in Cincinnati for a three game set Monday through Wednesday. Are you going with the same crew every time? Or are you, you know, after that series is over, do you hop over to Shea Stadium for a three-game set with a whole nother group of guys? Like, well, how exactly does that work? You, you work as a team. Okay, so all year. When I worked with Doug, it was uh, Doug Harvey and Frank Pulley and Nick Colosi. And Frank got hurt early in the season, and uh, he, didn't, he didn't work the whole year. But anyway, I mean, I worked with Billy Williams, John McSherry, and Paul Pryor. Uh, the first crew I ever worked with, uh, they brought me up just to give me a cup of coffee because, like I said, Fred Flagg wanted to, wanted to hire me. So he brought me up to work with Tom Gorman's crew. Now, Tom Gorman, it was Tom Gorman, Paul Pryor, John McSherry, and Art Williams. And uh, so there was eight games in six days in Atlanta, two doubleheaders. Oh. And so they brought me in to give those guys a break. Give them, you know, they wouldn't all have to work the double headers and, and the other games too. So that worked out. So I, my first eight games were in Atlanta, Georgia, and I had the Astros uh, for the first four uh, against the Braves. And then I had the Dodgers for the second four against uh, the Braves. And uh, those were my first four games in the big leagues. And I was like 23 years old. And uh, it, it was unique, you know, because that was my, my first trip to the big leagues. And, I was excited, but uh, I, I was really lucky playing football. Like I said, it teaches you a lot of things. So I really, really wasn't in awe of what was going on. Right. And in fact, uh, years later, Andy Olson, who was a, an umpire who's since passed away, he paid me one of the biggest compliments ever. He said, you're the only one that ever came up here that wasn't in awe of the game when he started. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, you had, you had started in national championship games at the NAIA level. You had played in front of a packed house before. Yeah, but uh, it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting profession. And, and you know, it's, it's funny. I've heard the term used to, uh, about being badge heavy. When you have a police officer that is a little rough arresting somebody or a little too pushy, you know, mm -hmm. it's a, that's another portion of the, of the job you have to, to worry about. You have to be firm and take control, but you can't be overbearing. Right. You know what I'm saying? And it's a fine line that you, you learn from the longer you hang around people. Uh, and, and so th this is not, 
from any sense of the word, easy, an easy job to do. Right. And you're always learning from day one uh, till now. I, I can honestly tell you, I, I don't know everything about this profession. I mean, I've seen a lot of stuff happen and I've, I've learned a lot of things uh, by situations that I've been in. And, but there again, you know, uh, the more experienced you get, the better you should be getting at your, at your craft. Sure. And your, your career, which obviously lasted well over 40 years, when you came in, Bowie Coombe was the, the commissioner. You were there for Peter Uberoth, Bart Giamatti, Faye Vincent, Bud Selig, and, and, and at the end, Rob Manfred. And then they no longer have them, but you used to have an AL president and an NL president. Yes. And on the NL side, you also had Chubb Feeney, Giamatti, before he became the major league commissioner, Bill White and Len Coleman. Did you have like a, a working relationship with with any of them, or was that were that you know that kind of distant from you being a senior umpire down on the field? Well, really, the only commissioner I, I never had any real dealings with. I shook his hand one time was Bowie Coon. Of course, okay. he was there when I just started. And then uh, uh, when Ubroth came in, Ubroth uh, embraced the fact that the umpires were his spokespeople on the field mm -hmm. and uh giamatti and and uh and Faye vincent were were about the same way um, um bud selig was an owner so he didn't really look at the umpires the same way those three guys did but uh and and basically uh, uh manfred uh, who came in after bud was was a negotiating attorney the dealings we had with him were usually in the in the boardroom negotiating the contract, but, uh, sure. But they all had their different, different personalities. You know, uh, I think the, the most amazing one was, uh, was Uberoth because he, you know, first of all, he, he's the only person that ever made a profit on the Olympics. <laughs> right. LA and then, 84. And then what he, and I think that's what got him the job. I think Bob Lurie, the owner of the giants played golf with him at Pebble beach in that, uh, that pro-am they have at Pebble Beach. And, and he called Selig and a, and a bunch of other owners and said, I've got the guy to replace Bowie because Bowie was trying to retire. And sure enough, they, they hired him. And the first thing Ubroth had to do was settle an umpire strike because they expanded the playoffs the year he came in. And uh, in fact, he didn't, he didn't even start that season. This is the first job he had was to sit in the playoffs and they had amateur umpires working the playoffs. Well, that was a disaster. Hmm. So he went to both league presidents. He said, I'll arbitrate this. You're going to sit down. You're going to both sides listen. And we're going to fix this because this is wrong. Well, the American League series was over before they could get that done. And the National League played one game with real umpires. And then they were back to work. And so whenever I see Peter, he says, you guys gave me a job to do the first day I came to work. <laughs> <laughs> but, but here's a guy that, that uh, marketed baseball. Right. Uh, and, and he was, he was good at it. He, he had a guy named Joel Rubenstein that helped him put the packages together. Uh, one of the first things he did was uh, they had, of course he settled the strike, but then, Gillette used to be the all-star sponsor for the all-star ballot. Sure. And he went to, to Ubroth and said, 
you know, we, we've really enjoyed being the all-star sponsor. And Peter said, yeah, that's good too. And if you want to do it again next year, it'll be a million dollars. Well, they backed out immediately. And uh, USA Today picked it up. And then he, he put together this thing, the tail of the tape to tell you how far the home runs went. And IBM sponsored it. And you, and you don't really realize that there, there are a lot of things going on in baseball that are paid, paid for by sponsors. Sure. And uh, I mean, I can remember when I came to the big leagues, Coca-Cola was paying the Atlanta Braves a million dollars a year for a sign in right field. Just one sign. Right. To be, to be the marquee thing. I mean, and the, the Dodgers stadium was built by union 76. Yeah. For the ad, the only ad in the ballpark. Yeah. They told the O'Malley family, if, if you can, if you'll let us build, uh, be the only ad in the ballpark, the only advertisement that can be seen from the seats, we'll build a stadium for you. Well, that was a no brainer. So, yeah, but uh, yeah. there, there's a lot of money out there that, that you don't see and you don't understand. And now they've, they put gambling in and uh, baseball gets a percentage of everything gambled in Vegas. They actually, they actually send the lineups for both the players and the umpires to Vegas before the game starts. Yeah. So, so that they can be a line drawn by whatever bookies or whatever they do. But, uh, but baseball, baseball's getting a cut of the action on gambling. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's funny, we're talking about Ubroth because he steps down. Giamatti is bumped up from the president of the National League to, uh, to commissioner for Major League Baseball. And one of the first things he has to face is the Pete Rose scandal. It, the Pete Rose thing, it, Ubroth caught him. Peter Ubroth caught him and took him aside and, and told Pete that, you know, if you'll, if you'll just sit out a year, we'll, we'll suspend you for a year. You go to Gamblers Anonymous. You do good things for the community and, uh, and we'll bring you back. We're, we're going to treat you just like they did Alex Karras and Paul Horning. Sure. Back that in the his, That was his idea. Yep. And Pete said, I'll take my chances with Bart. And that was a mistake because Bart was a romanticist. You know, Peter was a realist. Right. <laughs> so, right. Peter was a businessman. Bart would wear his Red Sox hat. <laughs> well, yeah, but uh, and then the next commissioner, uh, Faye Vincent, yep, he was he was overqualified. I mean, he he ran Paramount Pictures. He ran, he ran Coca Cola. I mean, this guy was a genius at everything he touched. Of course, all of these guys were smarter; they wouldn't have been in the positions they were in. You know? Right. And 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 then. Uh, you have to be a good guy. You know, a lot of, a lot of the, the problems that uh, they're having, let's take the Pete Rose incident. Uh, Pete has to be a good guy. I think baseball would welcome him back if he'd just be a good guy. But he even signs autographs in his voices. He says, sorry, I bet on baseball, Pete Rose. I mean, you know, just he should be thankful that he was lucky enough to play this sport, you know, as long as he did. And he, I don't know anybody that hustled harder, played harder, played smarter. He was a smart ball player. Sure. And well, actually, that, that gets me to, to something I wanted to talk about. So, so, so two things. So first of all, 
So you've got your crew, you travel around with your crew. When it comes to on any given night, how, how do you guys determine who's calling home plate? Who's at first, who's at second, who's at third? Is there like a natural rotation or yes. does everybody do it differently? The, the senior umpire, when they start the season, works home plate. Okay. And then he rotates clockwise. I okay. tell people this all the time. We, we rotate clockwise. And I tell them the players run backwards. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So the, the plate umpire will go the next game. He'll go to third. The next game, he'll go to second. The next game, he'll go to first. Then you oh. just rotate around. Okay. And then when, you, when you're in town, because like you say, there are no home games for the umpires. So, you know, to use my example earlier, if it's whatever it was, Cincinnati and Pittsburgh are playing in Cincinnati. You, the game ends at 10, 1030. You go back to the hotel. Maybe you're down at the bar as a crew having a beer. If you see three or four guys from, you know, the visiting pirates, do you, you know, will you guys go have a beer with them or is that, you know, strictly forbidden? You know, are there relationships outside the, outside the field of play? Well, you may, you may see them in the off season at golf tournaments and stuff like that, fundraisers and stuff like that, but it's kind of like the officers and the enlisted men. Okay. The, the players, We'll, we'll stay with their people and the umpires will stay with theirs. They, it's, uh, it's kind of funny, you know, and that's that's reason we have first-class airfare for major league umpires. Because years ago, they used to put the players on the same planes that the umpires were taking. And and they'd be, maybe there's a tiff that happened in the game that, that day, or maybe there's a tiff that's carried over from games before. Sure. So, so it wasn't smart to put the umpires in the in the same section as the players. So the umpires said, "Well, good. There's there's only a few seats in first class. We'll take them." So we <laughs> we negotiated that. We never gave it back. <laughs> <laughs> you did a pretty good job as the head of the union for ten or twelve years. You got a lot of things negotiated for you guys. Did you want to be the head of the union? No. It fell to you. No, I blame Ed Rapiano for that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, the, the good thing about it was if, if you show the management that you're serious about taking care of the game, they'll listen to you. Sure. And you, you have to show them that the game comes from, and you have to tell them that they're not the game. They're just the commissioner's office. And, and I made that very clear that, that, you know, we're in this to make baseball as good as we can make it. And, sure. And, of course, we want the umpires to be as good as they can be. So, like I said, it's, it's the kind of thing where we're, we're taking care of our own and we're taking care of the game. Yeah. And, and it's interesting you just said you want the umpires to be as good as they can be. Obviously, you guys are graded. Um, and I know that there's, you know, all kinds of conversation about the ABS system, the whatever it's called, the automated ball strike system, <clears throat> that it is accurate roughly 93% of the time. And I read that you said somewhere that the lowest rated umpire is right 95% of the time. So yeah, when, I, when I was working, we didn't have an umpire under 95. Right. And the machine, and this is the bad part of that machine, is when the machine misses a pitch, it doesn't call anything. Okay. So it's just a blank. Right. When an umpire misses a pitch, he, he calls it whatever it was the other. Yeah. There's at least a result. Yeah. There's at least something there. 
Right. But that machine, when it misses pitch, doesn't call anything. And I remember Andy Fletcher, great umpire, and he came to me one day and he says, I'm really concerned. I thought I had a good game last night. I said, I did too. I, I worked second base. Across. I didn't see a pitch I could question. He said, that, well, the machine said I missed six pitches. And I said, I don't believe that. And I said, how many did the machine miss? He said, oh, it didn't track 14. <laughs> I said, let me get this straight. We're going to use a machine that missed twice as many pitches as you did. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. But but these guys, they, they watch their work. They grade their, you know, they take the grades that the, the league sends you from grading them on their zone evaluation. And they live and die by it. And I tell people all the time, no one wants to miss a play. No one feels worse about missing a play or a pitch than the umpire himself. Yeah. And, uh, and everybody said, well, you have to be accountable. They are accountable. They are told every day, we think you missed this. We think you missed that, but whatever. And we and the big thing is, okay. And I said this to Manfred in one of the negotiations we had, I told him Rob's a big golfer. So I told him, I said, uh, you know, the best professional golfers in the world pay a million dollars a year for a coach. I said, we don't have one. I said, we go out there, you send us this film, you say, you missed this, you missed that. You missed. Well, if you can't tell me why I missed it, you're just as much part of the problem as everything else. Right. So I need to know why I missed it. Don't tell me I missed it. Tell me why I missed it. Right. And he got that right away. Nobody else in the room understood that, but because he was a golfer, he got it right away. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah. And you, when, when you have your disagreements, which are obviously inevitable and, you know, it, 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 there's obviously, you know, every umpire has the ones that like, you know, they're known for like, you know, the arguments, um, do you, how soon afterwards do you kind of find some time to chat with the person who you've just, you know, had the argument with is, are there times where it's just long simmering and it goes on for years or the next time you see each other, do you just kind of like, you know, nod to each other and carry on? Well, Bobby Cox, it was over when it was over. I mean, right. and he got kicked out more than anybody. Sure. You kicked him out of a World Series game, right? Well, he threw a helmet on the field. I don't think he meant to throw it on the field, but when he threw it, it bounced out in the middle of the infield. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> but, he, but when the game's over, it's over. He, and he started a new day the next day. And he, he was, you know, uh, if you kicked him out that night and he saw you on the side of the road with a flat tire, he'd stop and help you. I mean, sure. he was that kind of guy. Now, Earl Weaver, I don't think Earl finished the game I was in. <laughs> no, I, had him in I had him in two spring training games, and I don't think he finished either one of them. But now you put Earl on the golf course, and he was a perfect gentleman. Right. And he would tell you, he said, I'm trying to win. I don't want to get fired because I did something stupid. So I expect everybody to be as perfect as I am. And, and he would tell you that. But, uh, and, and Earl was a pretty good judge of umpires. He could tell you who the good umpire, you know, who else was a good judge of umpires was Billy Martin. Okay. They could, they could, Dick Williams, who was tough on umpires. He could tell you who the good umpires were and who the ones needed a little work, you know. Sure. But, uh, it's, uh, it's amazing that those guys I just named were hard on umpires. And you had to put your foot down and, and, you know, to uh, to take care of the game and and to protect your integrity. So yeah, but uh, and two of those guys you just mentioned, Martin and um, Earl Weaver, were strictly American League guys. 
Um, yeah, I only had, I only had them in spring training. <laughs> okay, right. We, I didn't, we didn't have them working uh, both leagues like after 2000. We didn't have them. Right. And I'm, and I'm curious because obviously sometimes a manager is trying to get himself thrown out to send a message to the team, get people fired up, whatever it is. Sure. Yeah. Are there times where you don't give them the satisfaction and you just kind of walk away and. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. I think the maddest Charlie Manuel ever got to me is because I wouldn't kick him out. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then there's the Larry boy, Eric Gregg situation where boy, boy doesn't want to play on the AstroTurf. It's hot. You can see the heat coming off the turf. And he's yelling at Eric and Eric says, uh-uh, if I got to stay, you got to stay. <laughs> <laughs> you can say whatever you want. I'm not throwing you. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. And so, and I am curious about, you know, the personalities, I mean, you know, across the years and across the different teams. Um, first of all, was there a position where you found you had more rapport than others? Like, the catcher because you know you're there the whole time you know more so than say third base or you know clearly the outfield you know when you look back on your career were you pretty tight with like you know 10 catchers but no outfielders or you know how did that work well i don't think i don't think gary carter could play a game without talking right he talked from the first pitch to the last pitch and he, he was funny because he had two different strike zones. He had, he had one strike zone when he hit, and he had another one when he caught. <laughs> funny that. <laughs> <laughs> but he, did, he didn't shut up the whole game. Now, Johnny Bench, on the other hand, he wouldn't say something unless he could give you a little dig or say something smart, you know. You know? Like I remember in Houston, we're, play, we're in the Astrodome, and and this guy started yelling at me from like the second row in the stands. And Johnny said, is, is that your pass? Did you leave him a ticket? <laughs> <laughs> he yelled at me for five innings. And then in the fifth inning, his voice cracked. And he turned around and he said, you finally got him. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, and we're, and I'm guessing just because, you know, you always see when, well, not you always see, but you oftentimes see first baseman, you know, kind of chatting with, you know, somebody who's just singled or just walked. Are you sometimes involved in that? Like, did you get to know some of the first baseman a little bit because there's a little bit more conversation going on? Oh yeah. You know, it's, it's, they're all, they're all different too. Sure. Willie Sargent was funny. Willie McCovey was funny too. I, and I happened to be behind the plate when he hit his 500th home run. Sure. He was. And the only reason I know that is because I saw it on the scoreboard after he hit it. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, yeah, these, they're the first baseman usually kind of cordial. Hello. How are you? And all this stuff. And I, I tell this story all the time about Tim Bogar when he came up, he was a shortstop for the Mets. Anyway, I think it was his first game in the big leagues. And Mark Grace hit a double. And now the Mets are going to bring in a relief pitcher. And so Bogar says hello to Grace. And he says, where are you guys going? It's a getaway day, you know. And Mark Grace says, uh, I think he said they were going to Montreal. And he turned and looked at me and he says, uh, Mr. West, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to San Diego. Where are you going? Tidewater, which is the minor league team. Okay. Well, he wanted to crawl in a hole and die. You just, I mean, just killed him. This is his first day in the big leagues. And 
I said, where are you going, Tidewater? <laughs> and I was really ruthless. I was terrible that way. It, it, he'd come to bat and I'd say, hello, Tidewater, how you doing? And he'd <laughs> bow his head off. So this went on for about three years. And after the third year, he came to bat this one time. And I said, hi, Tim, how you doing? He dropped his bat and he hugged me. He said, I finally made it. <laughs> <laughs> I stuck. <laughs> so That's funny. I didn't call him Tidewater anymore. <laughs> That's great. And, and, and some, of the, some of the National League managers, the guys who you just saw year in and year out, you know, guys like Tommy Lasorda, um, you know, you know, or like a Chuck Tanner with the Pirates. I mean, did you have like, you know, kind of ongoing, you know, rapport with those guys or was it game by game? Well, Chuck know? Tanner would pick on every young, young umpire. Okay. Until they stood up to him. He was ruthless. And Chuck Tanner is one of the nicest people you ever meet in your life. Yeah. But he would pick on young umpires until they stood up to him and said, enough's enough, you know, and then he'd leave them alone. Um, who was the other one you said? Like Tommy Lasorda. Could be any of them, but yeah, Lasorda. Yeah, I got in trouble. They asked me on a talk show in, in Los Angeles one time. says, what do you think of our manager, Tommy Lasorda? And I said, well, we never see him unless the TV cameras are running. <laughs> so, but he was quite the showman. And I'll give Tommy credit. If he ever met you and your family or somebody the first time, he would never forget them. He had a, a memory like a steel trap. He was, and he was the biggest Dodger promoter there ever was. Yeah. But, uh, and he, and, and, you know, most of those kids that he brought up in those years that he was winning, he had them in the minor leagues, you know, and when I first came up, he was the third base coach. Okay. For Walter Alston. Yes. So he was the third base coach in the, First time I had him was in Atlanta that weekend we were talking about. And uh, so Tom Gorman's working the plate. And Tom was the senior umpire in the National League. And it was his next to last year that he worked. Uh, but anyway, so Tom's behind the plate. And Lasorda walks down to me at third base and he says, uh, you know Tommy Gorman? I said, yeah. He says, he's the worst umpire in the National League. Well, I know he's setting me up for something because I'm brand new. And I said, well, if you got any guts, you'll go down there and tell him yourself. You know, he, he, he was trying to get me to go tell Tommy that he said that he was the worst umpire. In the, you right. Know. So uh, he said, I will. I'll go down there and tell him. Right. So I say, okay, next inning, you go down and tell him. So the next inning, he goes down there between innings. And I see Lasorda talking to Tom Gorman. And Tommy starts laughing. He rears his head back and laughing, right? And uh, so after the game, I said, what was that about? And Tommy said, well, Tom Gorman said, well, you got to understand. We were in the Dominican Republic together. And let sort of got in a fist fight in a bar. And he was getting killed. And I went and bailed him out. So the, the real story is Tom knocked out two or three people to bail Tommy Lasorda out of trouble. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Tommy Lasorda loved Tom Gorman. <laughs> yeah. He's just trying to stir the pot. <laughs> That's funny. 
And you, speaking of the Dodgers, of obviously you have a career like yours. You're there for a lot of big moments. You, you mentioned McCovey's 500th. You're there. I think I read this right. You're there when Hershiser breaks Don Drysdale's streak of, uh, what was it, 58 scoreless innings or whatever the number was. What was that like? Because that, that's one of those records. Every now and then you come across a record and you think, how the hell? It, nobody's ever going to break that record. That record is insane if you think about it. What, well, what was here's there? what's insane about that. He broke Drysdale's record and the game went extra innings. The Dodgers lost that game. Oh. Yeah, they were, they were playing the Padres. That, okay. game, that game went extra innings. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And was he on the hook for it or had he no, come out? No, he didn't lose the game. Okay. He was already taken out for a pinch hitter, but uh, the Dodgers didn't win that game. <laughs> yeah. Oh, interesting. So you couldn't even celebrate properly afterwards. No. Uh, mean, and, and what a, what a great pitcher he was. He, he didn't give you anything to hit. He was, he was, uh, he was something. And you know, what's funny. I think he was MVP of the world series that year, wasn't he? Because uh, 88. Yeah. Yeah. That was the year Gibson hit the home run that, off of, uh, Eckerson. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah, I want to ask you about that. So, so, so two things about that. The first one is a guy like Gibson, you're a football player. Gibson obviously is a stud football player at Michigan state. Do you, you know, do you guys talk about that at all? Like him or Steve Garvey, or if you ever overlapped with Rick Leach, who I know is an American league guy, do you ever kind of talk about that stuff like outside of the realm of baseball or is that few and far between? And then well, the other part is Gibson, with guy- Gibson. Gibson would bring it up. He would talk yeah. about it. He, he would say, when I was younger and playing football, nah, 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 nah. and uh, and he said, I was faster. I would do this. I, I said, yeah. Yeah, and if you'd had me as your quarterback, you wouldn't be a baseball player. <laughs> 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 and I don't think people realize but Steve Garvey may be the only baseball player that ever, ever tackled O.J. Simpson because Steve Garvey played at Michigan State. And, yeah. And when he when they beat USC the year Garvey played with him, and then the next year Garvey went to play for the or the next spring I should say he played baseball and the Dodgers drafted him as a baseball player. So sure. Um, the the greatest thing about this job is you witness a piece of history every day. Right. Some some days are bigger than others, but you're you're part of a piece of history, you know and. You don't, you don't really realize it uh, until you, you take a step back and look at this. Oh, my goodness, that was a no-hitter. Oh, look at this. This, this hasn't happened before, you know. Um, I can, and, and, you know, I, I was really lucky. I worked six different World Series, and I saw some of the greatest pitchers in the world. Yeah. And I also saw some of the greatest hitters in the world. Uh, and then I, I've seen – great umpires that aren't getting credit for being great umpires. You know, there's what is this nine, nine umpires in the hall of fame. Hell, I, I work with guys that ought to be in the hall. I work with more than nine guys that ought to be in the hall of fame. Sure. Sure. <laughs> and, uh, and they're not going to get there because the time they get out and three, four years go by, nobody's going to remember them. Right. Nobody's going to remember their name. Yeah. Yeah. Eddie, Eddie Matthews had a funny statement. He, 
He said, you don't, you don't make the Hall of Fame by hitting 515 home runs. You make the Hall of Fame by buying those writers' drinks. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie Matthews, first guy ever on the cover of Sports Illustrated, right? All those years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking of like those World Series that you that you um, umped. So, for instance, you, you had the Braves. You mentioned Bobby Cox. Um, the, the Blue Jays, I always, it's always amazing to me that Cito Gaston doesn't get more credit. You know, he wins back-to-back series for the Blue Jays. And when his time in Toronto was done, as far as I, I can remember, I don't think he ever got another job. You know, he just seemed like a very kind of quiet, studious manager who won. Somebody like him, you know, who maybe you'll tell me differently that he was always out arguing with you, but it didn't seem to be the case. What was your take on somebody like him? Well, it's a perfect example. He's got nobody promoting him for the Hall of Fame. Right. You know, when Dick Williams left, they didn't promote him until, I mean, his later years. Right. And Dick Williams is as good a manager as we had. I mean. He won an empty division. Why is, uh, why is Joe Torrey and Tony LaRusso in the Hall of Fame and Jim Leland's not? Right. You know, there, there's nobody promoting them. There's, there's something, something's not right there. And that's, that's not fair. I mean, yeah. uh, Whitey Herzog, when he, this is funny, because Whitey and Doug Harvey hated each other. <laughs> they went in the same class. <laughs> Back-to-back speeches. <laughs> and, and Whitey said, uh, it, it, going in the Hall of Fame was like being in heaven and I didn't have to die. <laughs> so, which is, that's a great line if you think of it, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's funny. Well, um, you know, going back to some of those World Series. So you're you're there. You're umping when the Cubs break the you know 100 plus year spell, um, and that that last game was incredibly dramatic, extra innings and delays and everything else. Tell me about that. I mean, it, do you feel the energy that you know all the players are feeling as that game is getting tighter and tighter? Well, yeah. In fact, if they don't have the rain delay, the Cubs won't win because the momentum had shifted. Yep. And uh, so the rain came, we had to stop the game. John Hirschbeck was the crew chief and, uh, and we're going to look at the weather. And uh, we got a little window to play in. And I said, I told John and I told the commissioners people, I says, uh, we have to, go out and take this tarp off or we're going to lose this game because the weather that's behind it will wash us out. And the only reason I knew that is because I had a sailboat and I was smart enough to learn how to read the weather (laughs) (laughs) and what's coming was bad. Right. And uh, so I went out and I yelled at the the ground crew to get the tarp off the field. They're kind of walking. I said, guys, we got to go now. We got to go now. You got to take this off now. And so they hurried, and we actually had the pitchers warming up before they got the tarp off the field. Hmm. And uh, it was a 16-minute delay. That's all. That's it. Wow. And I remember one of the little guys from, uh, from the network came and said, uh, we need a starting time. I said, when that pitcher's ready, we're starting. He said, no, I have to tell him upstairs. I said, you tell him when that pitcher's ready, we're starting. Right. He said, but I need a time. I said, I can't give you a time. We're trying to get this in before the rain. When he's ready, we're going to play. Yeah. He said, well, I have to tell him. I said, 
They've been here all night. They can wait a little bit longer. <laughs> so, the media people didn't like me for that. But, <laughs> but uh, sure enough, he got ready. Tarps off the field. They play the game. Boom. Cubs score a run. Then uh, they get three outs. And then uh, when he got the last out, they're celebrating, jumping up and down on the field. The bottom fell out. Rain, as hard as you've ever seen. Oh, is that right? I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. And uh, so we were lucky. You know, we if the Cubs didn't score a run, we would have had another rain delay. So, right. But, uh, and, it, and it was a unique series because uh, it didn't matter who won. It was good for baseball. And you don't normally have that. You know, right. uh, the Cubs hadn't, hadn't won in years. And, of course, neither had Cleveland. Yeah, yeah, it had been 1948 for Cleveland, too. Um, uh, and so when you're calling a game, when you're, when you're umping a game from behind the plate, somebody like Randy Johnson or, or, you know, kind of the mastery of like a Greg Maddox or somebody like that, is it, do you find yourself kind of thinking, my God, I couldn't imagine trying to hit that fastball, or you just have, you're focused on balls and strikes and that's it? Well, you're really focused on the on the pitches because, you know, it's something you don't really realize that once you learn how to umpire home plate, the harder they throw it, the easier it is. Sure. Because the ball levels out. Now, the harder they throw it for the hitter, the harder it is to hit because it's getting up on you real quick. Right, right. The harder, harder they throw it for the umpire, it's easier. The, the fastball, Nolan Ryan's fastball is much easier to call than Tim Wakefield's knuckleball. Okay. Or Joe Necro's knuckleball or Phil Necro's knuckleball. Yeah. I was going to ask you about those knuckleballers. Uh, how difficult was that? Because you just, you know, it's, it's gotta be so hard to know when the ball is crossing the plate. Where well, I'll it, tell you how difficult it is. The machine that grades us can't track them. Oh, right? <laughs> <laughs> it can't track them. It, it doesn't, it, it doesn't track them. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. <laughs> that's interesting. Um, and, and well, so speaking of, speaking of, of, uh, Joe Negro, um, obviously he famously had the little piece of sandpaper or the nail file, whatever it was in the back pocket of, uh, his pants back in 87 with the twins. If, if were you ever, and, and obviously Gaylord Perry famous for having, you know, different substances on his person, were you ever involved in one of those types of situations where you come out and you're like, let's see what you got there? Well, we had it in the playoffs with the, the Dodgers and the, and the Mets and uh, Dave Johnson came out and asked me to check the guy. And, oh, uh, how? Yeah. And uh, so I went out to check. I said, you know what you're starting? He says, the owners called me. I have to ask you to check him. So he says he's got something on his glove or whatever. So I said, well, you know that you're just opening a can of worms. They're going to start checking you too. He said, yeah, I know, I know, I know. So we go out there and I get the glove and he won't give, he won't let me have it. I said, I'm going to make this real simple for you. If you don't give me the glove, you're ejected automatically. So he gives me the glove and it's got pine tar all in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. So I call in the crew chief from left field, Harry Wendelstead. And I said, Harry's got pine tar on the glove. And he, Harry puts the glove on. And he kind of pats the middle of it and he says, uh, well, this is not too bad. And Rick Dempsey, who's the catcher, said, you're right, Harry, it's not too bad. 
<laughs> Paul Ruggy peeled him out of there. And uh, I said, Harry, he's got pine tar on his glove. One of us is going to have to kick him out of this game. Now, don't you still have the umpire school in Daytona Beach? He said, yeah, I got it. I'll take care of it. He throws, he throws him out of the game. So I didn't throw him out. Harry threw him out. <laughs> and I'll give Harry credit. He was smart. Bart Giamatti was the league president for the National League. He walked right over to his box and handed him the glove. <laughs> so yeah. Let there be no mistake. Yeah. This is the glove. Yeah. And Lasorda was so mad. He was jumping up and down, running around. and said, why would you do this to me? I said, we didn't do it, Tommy. He's your pitcher. So they asked Tommy after the game, the reporter said, did you ever doctor the ball? Tommy, he says, yeah, all the time. I needed the help. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, what, what was your take on the, uh, the sign stealing with the Astros, you know, that whole thing, you know, a couple of years ago? Well, they're, they're all doing it, but under the rules that the Astros are doing it illegally. Right. You can't do it with mechanical stuff. And, they, and so that's why they got penalized. I mean, uh, the guy, they've been doing this for a hundred years. Yeah. It wasn't like Harvey Haddock's the famous sign stealer. And well, I mean, it, these guys, they'd send people out in the center field with binoculars to look at the catcher's signs and they've been doing it for a hundred years. It, um, and, and I don't, I don't look at baseball players as, what you would call cheaters. I mean, they're not like stock car racers where if you're not cheating, you're not trying. Right. The, the point is that they're all doing it. They're all looking for an advantage. I mean, and, and what's crazy about this is these athletes are the most competitive of any sport. They want to beat you. I don't care if it's a game of checkers. Right. They want to beat you no matter what. They don't, they're not used to losing. And they, and they don't like losing. Right. And uh, they are the most competitive athletes that you'll find anywhere. And uh, so when they can get an edge, I mean, you see a guy take off, take a lead at second base. And if it's a breaking pitch, he'll bend his arms. And, uh, and the next time he comes to bat, if they caught him trying to flash signs, they'll throw at him. <laughs> right. right. You know? So, yeah. The game, the game takes care of itself. Yeah, I was going to say they, they sell police a lot of times. Yeah. Um, and what about, what about guys like, you know, the, the, the big personality, like a Don Zimmer or somebody like that? I mean, did you have, you know, do you have much of like many experiences with him or, you know, more, you know, kind of supposedly cerebral guys like a Joe Madden, like different well, ways? I had, of I had an unfortunate incident with Zimmer when he was coaching third base for the Cubs. And Keith Moreland is trying to take an extra base. He's running the third base and, and Zimmer didn't send him and Zimmer's trying to hold him up. And, and now he's going to be out by half the baseline. So Zimmer's trying to tell him to slide and he gets right in my way. So I reached my arm around him and pulled him behind me and he tripped over my leg and he went head over TKL. And he got up screaming and hollering and it was well, it's my fault because I threw him down, but I didn't mean to throw him down. I was just trying to get where I could see the play. And yeah. Moreland, Moreland was out half the baseline. So when I call him out, here comes Zimmer charging into me. The other three umpires, they can't figure out what Zimmer's arguing about because they didn't see him fall down. Right. So Doug Harvey comes up from home plate. Frank Pulley comes over from first base. And I mean, 
but it was it was an ugly argument. Yeah. And uh, and I realized that I had knocked him down, and I'm trying to hold him, and he's screaming bloody murder, and, and then Doug peeled him away from me, and Doug kicked him out of the game. Well, Zimmer hated me from then on, <laughs> and I don't blame him because I probably embarrassed him, and I didn't I didn't mean to, but I probably embarrassed him. But sure. Uh, but what we about had, guys? We had some tough guys. I mean. And and then we had guys that were were smart, uh, you know. Uh, I I'll give you a, a perfect example of a guy that sometimes I don't think was smart, but he was a talented guy. Bobby Valentine mm-hmm. got the manager's job in Texas, and he got kicked out fifteen times in one year by fifteen different umpires. <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> you can, he's an antagonist. <laughs> I mean, well, at least he was an equal opportunity employer. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Didn't he, one of those times, well, later in his career when he's with the Mets, didn't he get kicked out and uh, come back, reappear in the dugout in um, with a mustache, yeah. With a mustache and a trench coat or something like that. <laughs> a mustache and big black glasses. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He got fined pretty good for that one. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of rubbing your nose in it. <laughs> what What about a batter like a Tony Gwynn, a guy who, you know, I, it's hard to compare people to Ted Williams, but both San Diego natives and obviously, you know, just an incredible hitter. What was it like kind of being behind the plate when he's up there doing his job? Well, the, the unique thing about Gwynn is he'd hit the ball to all fields, which uh, today these these players are all trying to hit home runs and everything, but but uh, Tony Gwynn would hit it to the left side, the right side. He'd turn on the ball if you made a mistake and hit it out. Uh, and he was, uh, he was, I would compare him to George Brett mm-hmm. as far as the ability to handle a bat. You know, I didn't have Carew. Yeah. I, I only had Brett in a couple of spring training games. But uh, I mean, uh, they're talking about the shift and all this stuff now. I mean, they asked Rod Carew one day what he would hit with the shift, and he said 900. So, <laughs> um, I mean, you don't put the shift on a guy that can handle a bat like that, you know, you that's just dumb. Yeah, I remember but, with uh, Rod, they used to say, hit him where they ain't. Yeah, he was years ago, they started having a, an all star captain for the American League and the National League. And I think. One of the years they, they had Willie Mays and one of the years they had a Hank Aaron. But one of the years the American League got Rod Carew. So there are a couple of the all-star players they asked Rod Carew and just in passing it, what's your favorite song? What's your favorite musical song? And Rod said, the national anthem. And they looked at him and said, the national anthem? And they said, well, why is that your favorite song? He said, cause I knew when I heard it, I was going to get two hits. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> oh, that is funny. Um, what about, what about some of the guys in Cincinnati, Sparky Anderson and then Lou Pinella? Well, Sparky, Sparky was a feisty little guy and you know, he might've had the best eight players I've ever seen. Unbelievable. The big red machine. Yeah, that that was that might have been the best uh, group I've ever seen. But he didn't have any pitching. You know, they'd win the games eight to seven, eleven to eight, right, uh, nine to six. Uh, 
I mean, their pitching was terrible. When they traded for Tom Seaver, I thought this guy might not lose a game with them, you know, because Tom was that good. Sure. But uh, they were loaded. And, they, you know, they called him Captain Hook. He said, oh, he comes out and he takes his pitchers out. It, well, he took them out because they were bad. <laughs> they didn't have any pitching. Yeah. So, uh, but, I mean, he did a lot. I was surprised when they let him go. Of course, I was surprised when they started moving players around. Like, why would you let Pete Rose go to the Phillies? You know, right? Uh, but uh, that's baseball. That's it's a business, and you have to look at it as a business. But I, I don't believe I've ever seen uh, a team better than the Reds. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, every now and then online, you'll see pictures of all-star teams from you know '77 or '78 or something like that. And it's if it's 30 guys, there's literally like eight Reds to include every position player outside of maybe one. Well, now prior to that in the '60s, the Cardinals had teams like that. You know, yeah. in fact, one year their whole infield started for the All-Star. But I mean, you're talking about franchises that, that built their players from the ground up and. Uh, they built them through the minor leagues and uh, it, there wasn't really a lot of free agency until the people like Steinbrenner got involved and started trying to buy up a pennant right. instead of building it. And, uh, and it's kind of funny because one of my guests on uh, the podcast I'm having, one of my future guests is going to be Jackie Autry. And she, she told me one day, she said, I used to chew Gene out and tell him, you spend $40 million on this ball club. You don't have a minor league system. you got to build from within. <laughs> she, yeah. So she's, she's getting on Gene Autry about not having a minor league system. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting point. I mean, that, that Reds team, they win in 75 and 76 and that's right when free agency kicks in and all of a sudden, you know, that team is dismantled and all of a sudden the Yankees with a bunch of free agents, they start winning. You know, they're bringing in guys like Torres and Jackson and, you know, whatnot. Um, did you did you ever have much contact with Reggie Jackson? I mean, he was obviously an American League guy, but. Reggie and I uh, were in a movie together, The Naked, <laughs> the naked Gun. <laughs> and he was the outfielder that was supposed to kill the queen. And uh, it was funny. Uh, he had retired and. Uh, He's going to be the Angels right fielder in this ball game. And I was a National League umpire at the time. This is in the middle 80s. And I'm wearing an American League hat. And I'm supposed to get kicked out of the game by Leslie Nielsen. He's going to kick out the first base umpire and the third base umpire. And I was the third base umpire. And uh, so Reggie is the right fielder. And when we're closing all the stuff up, uh, they want to have a curtain call, like a Broadway play where people come out and you clap and whatever. And uh, we did it for about 15 minutes. And we did it about four times. And every time they go to get Reggie to get on his mark, he was in the dugout talking to Priscilla Presley. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they got 2000 extras sitting in the stands behind first base. And the director's going, Mr. Jackson, Mr. Jackson, Mr. Jackson. And uh, on a movie set, you don't call anybody by their last name. It's first names. I mean, even the stars, uh, Leslie, George Kennedy, Priscilla, Pre whoever, 
You call sure. them by their first name. So the director's calling Reggie and he's going, Mr. Jackson, Mr. Jackson. And so all these people are sitting in the stands and they're getting a little nervous right now. I said, hey, Reggie, you messed up the Yankees and you're messing this up too. Let's get on your mark. <laughs> so he ran out of the dugout like he's going to argue. And I threw him out and the, and the 2,000 people stood up and cheered. <laughs> well, we had a good time on that. That was a fun set. Oh, I'm sure. We had a good time. The next time I saw Reggie, he was at Pebble Beach. And uh, and he pulled up beside us on the third hole in his car. It was an Escalade, big, big white Escalade. And he stepped over the fence and said, hey, cowboy, how you doing? And the guy I'm playing with is a New Yorker named Peter Soboloff, who lived and died for the Yankees. <laughs> and uh, this is Reggie Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, I'd like to meet meet Reggie Jackson. <laughs> he couldn't talk, <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, I've I've known Reggie a long time, and uh, he was uh, he was good friends with another umpire named Drew Coble. In fact, I think he gave Drew a dog one time. Huh. But anyway, that's that's a long time ago. Anyway, and uh, but I still every now and then I'll hear from him. Somebody will sign a big contract and he'll pick up the phone and call and say, can you believe what this guy signed for? <laughs> yeah. Like they used to say that about you, Reggie. <laughs> um, that's funny. Um, oh, shoot. Oh, you know what? I was going to ask you in the, obviously there's the strike year of 94. And then, and then when the players come back, baseball struggles a little bit. And then you've got, you know, starting in kind of whatever it was, 98, 99, you start to have McGuire and Sosa and all those guys hitting all those home runs as an umpire. Are you sitting there thinking to yourself, what's going on here? Or, Hey, game's the game and off we go. Well, you gotta, you gotta realize it. 94 was a bad year because the, the owners kind of, lock the players out. Yep. The, the players weren't responsible for that. That, that was an owner's issue. Mm -hmm. And then the owners couldn't stick together because one of them went out and signed a guy for over $10 million. And in 94 or 84, that was 94. That was a lot of money. Yeah. And a week later, they signed somebody else for more than that. Um, so, I mean, they, they didn't get accomplished what they wanted to get accomplished. Uh, I, and, uh, if you, if you're from Canada, everybody in Canada believes they did that because the, uh, the blue Jays had won two world series in a row and the, and the Expos had a good team that year. Right. <laughs> but I, I don't buy that, even though that's a good conspiracy theory. Right. But, uh, but them coming back, uh, baseball needed like I said, she's a fragile lady and she needs to be taken care of. Yeah. And when you stop a season like that, the people that get hurt are the little people. It's not the big boys. It's not the players. It's not the owners. It's the little people. It's the ticket taker, the usher, the, the little guys that are depending on this, you know, so they can send their kids to school or something. So uh, that that's a sad thing when that happens. And, and we saw it again this year in spring training when uh, they held everything up. The people that got hurt were the little hotel manager down in Florida or the little hotel manager in Arizona, the restaurant owner and so on and so on. 
Sure. And and again, we have to we have to be custodians of the game and take care of it. And that's part of it because we're all in this together. I mean, it's like a family. I mean, sometimes there's arguments in the family. Well, okay, let's fix them. But uh, we need to be a little more uh, cognizant of the fact that we're hurting other people and we're not, and to do this to the game is not good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there are two things I want to touch on before we wrap up. One of them is, so, so last year you break Bill Clem's record for most games ever umpired. And then by the end of the season, you've, you've umpired 5,460 games. When you break the record, in attendance are Rob Manfred and Peter Ubroth, the current and one of the former commissioners, Emmy Lou Harris from the world of country music, Jim McMahon, Super Bowl winning quarterback, Garth Brooks offers a video testimonial, the Oak Bridge boys sing the national anthem and some other things. Tell me about the experience of that night as you break the record for most games ever umpired and that eclectic crowd that you brought with you <laughs> that came to honor you. Well, that was the most expensive game I ever worked because I had to buy 130 tickets. <laughs> but, but it was, you left out another country music artist that was, or a few, there were a few other ones there. There was Bobby Mackey from Cincinnati and then Larry Gatlin was there. Okay. And, uh, but the Oak Ridge Boys actually, actually asked their agent to get them to sing the national. We've been friends for 40 years and uh, they had a, they had a good time there, and I, I've uh, there's a picture behind me on the wall. Is they're in the they're in it. The, the San Diego Chicken came out of retirement. That was fantastic. He gave you a bouquet of flowers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but the Ubroth family was there. They came in from the West Coast, and uh, he gave me a, a Pebble Beach uh, coffee mug. You know, he's he's still involved with the golfer in fact the 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 world's or the the golf hall of fame gave him a meritorious service award for uh, making pebble beach what it is he's one of the one of the four uh, majority owners of pebble beach oh wow i didn't know uh, that and, and again we've been friends since he became commissioner uh, sure uh, so he was there you're right manford was there dan halem was there uh, there were a lot of people from the office were there from the supervisory staff of umpires and, and so on. And, uh, there was, uh, uh, Jim McMahon was there. Dave Casper from the Raiders was there. And Paul what's your relationship with McMahon and Casper? How did that come about? Just playing golf or. Well, I met, I met McMahon and these golf tournaments I'm playing in Destin every year. Okay. And, uh, He's a funny individual. Yeah. Uh, he's a nutcase, <laughs> but, but I love him. You know, uh, Casper, I met at a chili cook-off in, in Flatonia, Texas. Okay. We, were, we were picked to be judges in a chili cook-off in Flatonia, Texas. And uh, well, that's right. Cause he used to be with the Oilers after the Raiders. Right. That's right. He went to the Oilers and, uh, and he became pretty good friends with Joe Necro. Okay. Uh, Paul Krause, I met at golf tournaments across the country. Uh, Viking Free Safety Hall yeah, of Fame. He, he has the most interceptions of anybody in the NFL. Yep, 81. 
And then, uh, let's see, um, I'm trying to think who else. Oh, uh, Mark Eaton, the center for the Utah Jazz was there. Oh, sure. And Joey Crawford was there. Jerry Crawford was there. Joey Crawford was the NBA referee. Joey, uh, no, Joey was the NBA referee and Jerry was the major league umpire and his dad Shag was a, a national league umpire. Okay. And when, and when Mark Eaton saw Joey, he said, you cost me the block shot title. You called too many fouls for me. <laughs> it was around that time. Somebody said, man, you seem to have a lot of friends. And he said, well, I don't have any enemies in baseball. I outlived them all. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's exactly <laughs> But like, you know, I, I've been very lucky. I've been very blessed to, to know all the people and, and, uh, and just, uh, it's just been, I've been very fortunate. And uh, yeah. So I, I can, I, I thank baseball for giving me that opportunity uh, to meet all those people. And, and again, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not a job where you're going to make a lot of friends. You make them off the field because they respect what you do. But, uh, and there's a lot of players on the field that respect you. I, Adam Wainwright came up and shook my hand at home plate the night I broke the record. He oh, that's said, cool. Yeah. I saw a great clip of, no, I'm a Twins fan. I saw a great clip of uh, Nelson Cruz at one of the All-Star games. He's about to go, uh, he's about to have an at-bat. And all of a sudden he has the catcher take a picture of you and he behind home plate. And the announcer's even saying, are they taking a picture? <laughs> it's great. Uh, and I hear him uh, say something like, well, we're the two old guys. <laughs> he, he said something in Spanish to Yadier Molina. And then he handed him the phone. And then he puts his arm around me. And I got this microphone on and I can't even tell him to get the hell away from me because everybody hear it on the air. <laughs> so he takes a picture and I look in the American League dugout and they are dying laughing. They thought right. it was the funniest thing they ever saw. And all I can think of is this is not going to be pretty. <laughs> but the, the media handled it really nice. They said, well, that's a touching thing, you know. So, but, That's great. Uh, yeah, it was... It was a nice thing. And you know what he did? He sent me a, a poster sized picture of it, uh, of the picture. And, uh, and he autographed it for me and, and, uh, and he sent six more copies with it for me to autograph for him. <laughs> oh, to send back. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And he paid the clubhouse attendant in Houston to bring them to me. Because <laughs> I was in Boston when he gave them to me. Right. I don't know where he was, but uh, it was it was something else. Oh, that's that's funny. Well, so so uh, before we before we wrap up, tell me about the podcast fifty four sixty uh, the uh, the Joe West podcast with Mike Claiborne, who is one of the announcers for the Cardinals, right? Yeah this this was Mike's uh, baby. He thought this up, and he says, "We'll just ha get on here and have a good time, and if we don't have a good time, then we won't do it anymore." And uh, he said, all the stories you have to tell about the people you hang around with and have been associated with all these years, he said, well, we'll try to get some of them on there. And, and we've already cut like eight shows and uh, <clears throat> we're, uh, we're looking at guys like Jim McMahon, like you, you talked about. Uh, and uh, we had Larry Gatlin that we recorded last week. We had Rick Hummel, who's a Hall of Fame writer for the Post-Dispatch in St. Louis. 
and we've already interviewed uh, Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the White Sox. Oh, that's cool. And we, we got some funny feedback from that because uh, the people in Chicago are, are mad that I got an interview with Jerry and they can't get one. So, right. <laughs> exactly. so I have to send a message to him that you don't have enough clout, you know. <laughs> but uh, we did Hulk Harrelson. And uh, you know, there's going to be one a week for the next 20, 25 weeks, I think it is. Okay. And, uh, it's, it's really fun. We're going to do the Oak Ridge Boys. Um, here's, a, here's a good one. I told you I knew Jackie Autry, right? Sure. She's going to do one with me. I think that's great. And uh, we talked to Ann Myers Drysdale, and she's going to do one with us. And, uh, oh, that's cool. So uh, Great basketball I, player, Ann Myers. Oh, yeah. And she's the first woman to ever trial for an NBA team. Yeah, and, I remember that with the Pacers, if I recall correctly, I think. But, uh, yeah, she's been her friend for a long time. We got a couple of umpires we're going to get on there. And uh, it'll, it'll be a lot of fun. Is it on all major platforms? I don't, I don't know how that works. You know that better than me. <laughs> well, I'm figuring it out as we go. Yeah. My, my guess is it will be. My guess is it will be. But, um, but all it takes is a simple search of 5460, the Joe West podcast with Mike Claiborne. And it should and, come up, yes. And it, yeah, you'll find it. Um, well, so I, I want to read two quotes from one of the guys who, you know, you, you called his games, Tony LaRussa. Um, obviously, uh, uh, I think three-time World Series winner. Tony, Tony LaRusso said he's very consistent. He controls the game and that's what an umpire is supposed to do. I always thought he was very fair. He's the perfect guy to set the record because he really represents what an umpire should be about. And that's from one of the guys whose games you called Tony LaRusso. I thought that was a great, you know, kind of encapsulation of, of your career. Well, he's, I've known him a long time. I actually umpired some of his games in the minor leagues when he was playing. And so I've known him more than 45, 46 years. And, uh, and he, he'd come out and go over ground rules and he'd say, and uh, if there's any question, trust the umpire's judgment and he'd walk away. <laughs> That's so right. He was, he was a great, and there, I mean, there's another guy. I mean, he's, he's a hall of famer. Yeah. Um, and a, and a great manager and he's been successful everywhere he went. Yeah. Yeah. It really has been. Well, uh, Joe West, I have to tell you, thank you so much for coming on and giving me so much time. It's been so entertaining hearing stories about, you know, all these players and managers and stories from across your 40 plus years in the majors. Um, and I've, as an aside, I want to say thank you to Andrew McClure for hooking us up. Um, and also, uh, you know, once again, please listen to 5460, the Joe West podcast, when you're not listening to Chasing Hardware. Uh, so, Joe, thank you very much for coming on. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. We'll do it again. Sounds good. Sounds good. Take care. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Tonight, it feels like life. Come on. Life is like.